Good morning. One way or the other, this is the last Sunday on the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews 13, and I forgot my clicker. If we don't get that far, I want to bring this verse up. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And that will be how we enter into the next hour. It'll be our sacrifice of praise. For me, this hour, this is my sacrifice of praise. So, does anybody know who that lady is? Not the name, but do you know anything about her? Three, four, how, okay, so all four know that, okay? Does anybody know anything about that lady on the left? Went four for four on the first one, zero oh for four on the second one. Yes, yes, one out of four knows that. Okay, now, back to that lady. What is she famous for? Okay, that's the least of her problems. What else is she famous for? She didn't win any gold this year. She's a big supporter of LGBTQXYZ, etc. She has thumbed her nose at God. What is she famous for? That's exactly right. She turned her back on our country. Anybody know who that lady is? Oh, for five. That's the one worth knowing. Her name is Sydney McLaughlin. She's 21 years old. She's the only lady that has broken the 52-second barrier in the 400-meter hurdle. Now, if anyone's ever been involved as a kid in track and field, uh, 100 meters is bad enough. 400 meters, and the hurdle in the Olympics is a meter high. So I don't think she's as tall as I am. So she not only has 400 meters in 52 seconds, but she's also hurdling some barriers. Now, why would I bring her up? She set a new world record got the gold medal, this is why. Records come and go, the glory of God is eternal. I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. I don't deserve anything, but by grace through faith, Jesus has given me everything. That's why I bring it up. It's not told. That's why I bring it up. Okay. You could have one or two athletes kneel on a football field, and the camera will home there, and the other hundred, nothing. Okay. They used to show that circle. Yes, they used to show that circle. Okay, back to Hebrews. The bottom line says, you go, girl. Okay. We're here in chapter 13. Jesus is superior for life, 
and we're going to see a series of exhortations. The, this last chapter is written almost like the book of Proverbs, one topic, another topic, another topic. But there are the topics in chapter 13, brotherly love, marital fidelity, and as your eyes can go faster than my lips, you can see how in just 25 verses they cover a lot of different topics. And they're not covered topic one, topic two, topic three. They're, they're blended, just like the book of Proverbs. Let brotherly love continue, verse one. So let's start with a nice question. What is brotherly love? That's the word Philadelphia. What is brotherly love? Okay, kindness and compassion, okay. The kind you would show your brother. Where is my brother? Now, who's got a, a physical brother that's far away? Far away, where is he? That's pretty far, yeah. Okay, a lot of families, and I'm, I'm gonna blame the interstate highway system for this. It used to be that when you're born in a certain region, you stayed in that region. Now you're everywhere and everywhere, right? But you can have a brother anywhere in the world. What is a brother? Physical brother, there's a brother in Christ. There's a physical brother, there's a brother in Christ, and then we're going to extend that to sister as well, right? Yeah, we're going to extend that to sister. So there's a, a brother by blood, and a brother by spirit. Who is my brother? You know, we hear people talk about the uh, universal fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. But Jesus didn't think that way. This is in John chapter 8 when he's having, as usual, a confrontation with the Pharisees. And he says, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father that will you do. He was a liar and the father of lies, and the truth is not in him. Now, remember the audience here is the Hebrew believer. And not the current day Hebrew believer, although it still applies. The historic biblical time Hebrew believer. And when that Jew received Jesus Christ, he was cast out. So how does that castaway brother, how should that castaway brother relate to those Hebrew brothers? They were by blood, okay? How does he relate to them? And there's the verse. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So now we'll go to the next verse. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers for they come to you and you might be entertaining angels unaware. Now that does not mean, you know, da, 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 right? It's hospitality. And I have often said, I, I can't hold a candle to my dad. We would have a Christmas meal or a Thanksgiving meal, and I can't say more often than not because I wasn't keeping score, but I would say very, very often there was a stranger or strangers at the table. My dad had a homeless man living for quite some time in our spare bedroom. My dad was the ultimate of that. And whether those guys, I don't think the one guy was an angel because my dad found out that he would take my brother and myself to the different bars 
and teach us how to say epeat, which means give me a drink. <laughs> well, my dad fixed that, and we couldn't go running with this guy anymore. <laughs> Remember those who are in prison. Now, I will say that Jim Kreider, for me, is the embodiment of the Onesimus ministry. And every time I see Jim, I think about those decades he went to the Pocopson prison unless the snow or an illness would hold him back. He was like the ultimate in faithfulness. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now we had an interesting experience and it might, it might come back. When that COVID hit, especially the older people, if they were in a hospital, they were in a nursing home, no visitors. They might as well have been in prison, although you can't compare to the chains that these guys were bound in. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And you can read the rest of that while I make this comment. You oldsters have heard this story before. Many years ago, I was flying from San Francisco to Philadelphia. I did that very often because I work for a company that's headquartered in San Francisco. And what a delight I had to have my Bible that I could read for six solid hours and no interruption. The downside, of course, is when you go to California for a week, you have to check your bags. So I read my Bible, I'm done, I go over to the baggage claim. Obviously in Philadelphia the bags are never there. So I would sit down and I start reading my Bible. This lady comes, there are all kinds of chairs, sits down right next to me, and she had a skirt on about the size of a washcloth. And she said, what are you reading? The first bullet there. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. I didn't say anything other than to read that verse. And she said, well, be the technical, we're not committing adultery, we're fornicating. Well, again, young in the faith, King James only, had no clue that that word whoremonger comes from the word poros, from, where, from which we get both pornography and fornicator. So she was right in line there, but uh, it was a, an exchange I'll never forget. That word bed comes from the word coitus, where we get the word coitus. So when the bed is undefiled, what that, what that is telling me is this. Sex within the marriage is a blessing. Sex outside of marriage is a curse. If you see an unmarried couple and they're fighting all the time, there, there are plenty of people out there. Go find yourself a different date. If they can't do it, mark it down. They're having sexual relations but the bed is undefiled. I'm not going to go any deeper. We already studied 1 Corinthians. Keep your life from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Why? Somebody asked the, uh, the eldest Rockefeller, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And he said, just a little more. 
Well, the Bible gives us the, the answer right in that verse. It says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It doesn't matter what's in my bank account because I have Jesus. And why else? The result? What's the result of being free from the love of money? There it is. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? There was a man had a radio program down in Baltimore, name was Dr. Decker. Anybody ever listen to Dr. Decker? 7.40 a.m., came Cub Hill Presbyterian Church. Well, he was once almost mugged in the city of Baltimore. Now, Baltimore has some miserable neighborhoods. And he was held up at gunpoint, and he looked at the man and he said, you can't threaten me with heaven. Now, that's a cute thing to say while I'm sitting here in, in the Mount Vernon sanctuary, but if I'm in some dark alley in Baltimore and somebody's pointing a barrel at me, I don't know how, um, how much candor I would show. <laughs> but I will say this. In Mark's Gospel it says, do not worry what to say in times of peril because the Spirit will give you utterance. So, if you're free from the love of money, you can do what you do. Book of Colossians, the book of Ecclesiastes says, with all my might, but to please the Lord. The book of Colossians says we're to labor as if laboring for the Lord as our master. Whoa, again the wrong button. Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches, because if you gave me too much, I could say, who's the Lord? Remember the parable? It said there was a man who had a bumper crop, and he said he's going to knock down his barns and build bigger. Thou fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. What does a man gain if he gains the whole world that loses his own soul? So I don't want to have too much, and I don't have too little so that I have to go and steal and uh, curse God because he put me in a bad spot. I'll never forget one of Marv King's brothers came back from Ethiopia. Ethiopia is not a pretty place. And I had an opportunity to talk with him, and I said, let me ask you this. The book of, Pro the book of Psalms says, I once was young, but now I'm old. I've never seen his seed begging bread. I said, what does that mean in a place like Ethiopia? He said, it means they always manage to have enough. Now for me, enough means three square meals, otherwise my stomach starts going blah, right? But in Ethiopia, I can imagine where three square meals would be a, a dream. He said they always manage to have enough. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of faith and imitate their faith. So then I'm going to ask the question, why does the author add that phrase? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Why are those two together? It's because man can fail. You could say, oh, John is a wonderful teacher. Oh, Tony is the best pastor I've ever sat under. We can stumble and, stumble and fall, and 
if you tie yourselves to a John or a Tony or a J. Vernon McGee or, or anybody else, your faith can be shaken. But keep in mind, Jesus is like the ultimate steady eddy. He'll never, he'll never change. The book of Hebrews, we studied it in chapter 6, two immutable things that God cannot lie. God's, Jesus is going to tell the truth, and he's going to always tell the truth, and it's not going to change. I was speaking with a young man this week, and he said, you know, I was raised in church, and I heard all that stuff, but I've come to the conclusion that God couldn't possibly have created a place called hell and sent people there. And I said, do you believe Jesus would tell the truth? Yeah. You believe he would always tell the truth? Yeah. I said, well, in Luke's gospel, the Bible says that there was a rich man who woke up in torment. And so either Jesus told a lie or there is a hell that people get sent to. He was late for a meeting. <laughs> Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now, I'm convinced that the Church of God is the biggest dysfunctional family of all history. And different people have different notions. There are some that believe the gifts of the Spirit are gone, and some believe that they're still around, and some believe you can lose your salvation, and some believe that you can't lose your salvation. Those are not aberrant teachings. Those have been, fun they, they have been grounded. Whether you agree with them or not, it doesn't matter. What does matter is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm leading a Bible study on Friday mornings. We're covering the book of Jonah. And my challenge is that there is an observant Jew in the group. And so all the things, all the points that I want to make are all based on Old Testament scriptures. But I have to, every once in a while, go to the New Testament. And I ask the question, I said, and I'll ask the question now too, what is the most important verse or verses in the New Testament? Any contributions? The most important verse or verses in the New Testament. Eight twenty-eight. Okay. Some would say eight twenty-eight. Some would say eight one. Some would say John three sixteen. First Corinthians fifteen four says this. I can't quote it exactly, but Paul says, "I'm giving you this of first importance." that Jesus died, was buried according to the scriptures, and rose. And so then the follow-up question was, why is that the most important? Down around verse 9 it says, if Christ had not been raised, then you are still in your sins and your faith is vain. Pray for that observant Jew, please. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and by foods which have not, and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, each of us was raised in a different kind of a faith system. I was raised in a Catholic system. And I was having this conversation with my sister this week. My other sister was celebrating her 65th birthday, so we were getting together. 
I said, Rosalie, you know what the silliest thing I ever did? She said, no, what? I said, first of all, I stole the dollar from my dad. Second of all, I went across the street to the bar, up northern, northeast Pennsylvania is filled with bars that have great food, and I bought a hoagie. And the lady, Mrs. Strauss, said, uh, did your mommy send you over here? I said, yeah. So I stole, and then I lied, and then she called my mother and said, um, did you send Johnny over here to get a hoagie? She said, no. I got my hoagie, but I also got all kinds of money and change. I didn't steal a one, I stole a 10. I finished my hoagie, trying to figure out how to put all that money back, and of course, as I opened the door, there was mom. To make matters worse, it was Friday on a Lent day. And so, I have not profited, no one has ever profited by being told, you can't eat this, you can't eat that, uh, priests can't marry, all those things are of man. But to be strengthened by grace, a great phrase I've heard recently is, grace given is grace received. You give somebody some grace, it's because you're receiving some. It's like love, you say, the more you give away, the more you have. Notice we jumped from verse 8 to verse 17. We did the same thing on the, the um, obey the leaders, but verse 17 comes back and ties this together. So rather than ping-pong uh, topics, we're just going to go down topic by topic. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You will give an account. James chapter 3, we're going to go into James next, talks about uh, not everybody should be a, a teacher because teachers are judged with, to a different standard. But the leaders are going to have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Can you imagine if you had a pastor that every minute seemed like he was weaned on lemon juice? That would be terrible. That would be terrible. Uh, he delivers a message like he just read it last night in some book. That would be terrible. I love my pastor. Every, every time he, he does something different, it's, it's something new, and it's, it's, it's always getting better. So let's keep praying for that pastor. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now keep in mind, this is... Hebrew believers. For most of the sacrifices, portions were burned, and the Levites got to eat other portions. You read your Old Testament, you'll have, have plenty of that stuff. But this is talking about a sacrifice where those priests had no right to eat. Now, I want to draw your attention down to that phrase all the way on the bottom, once for all. It doesn't just mean died for all people. It doesn't just mean died for all sins. It also mean, means died for all sacrifices. So the Passover, you see the cross? Jesus died like the Passover lamb. What did the people do once they drained the blood? They painted, okay? Did Jesus paint that cross? 
He surely did. The people, after the Passover, ate the lamb. So that's one sacrifice he died for. Yet, he said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you will not have life in you. He's talking about that Passover sacrifice. And then that following Sunday, three days, not 50 days, three days was the Feast of First Fruits, where it's a, a wave offering. Well, Jesus satisfied the, free, the, the Feast of the First Fruits in the death, burial, and resurrection because when that veil was split, can you imagine that high priest when he goes in there Sunday ready to, to do his thing and he's looking at that curtain? I read where it could be as much as six inches thick, all totally woven. Then you see that cow on the left? That's the Day of Atonement. That is the Yom Kippur. It's, it's roughly in October, September, October time frame. And when they sacrificed on Yom Kippur, what they did was they sacrificed the animal and they took the remains outside the camp. Now notice they have the word tent in there. I think it's, yeah, it's right there, second line, tent. Well, at the time of this writing, there wasn't a tent. There was a temple. There wasn't the tabernacle, but the temple was there. And they're saying, those do not have the right to eat that for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought up into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, those things are burned outside the camp. Well, they didn't have a camp anymore, like following the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They had the city of Jerusalem. So, we're going to come back to that word camp in a little bit. We have an altar. Let us go to him outside the camp. Again, this is a, a, a Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers approach to what they're studying in the temple, in the building, okay? Does anybody have a clue what the garden tomb is about? No. If you ever have an opportunity to go to Israel, go. It changed my life, and I expect it will change yours as well. Jesus was buried on a hill called Calvary, Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, what do you see inside that circle? Two eyes and a nose. Do you see it? The place of a skull. You say, well, that's pretty creative. You take a look at some of those constellations, I think that's creative. This is just north of Jerusalem, and if you get to go to Israel, I will tell you that the Catholics, 300 AD, destroyed a lot of real estate. They would take a place, and they said, well, this is, where, this is where Mary was visited by Gabriel. And so what they did was they destroyed it and built a church. This is where Jesus was buried. They destroyed it and built a church. So, a couple hundred years ago, there was a commander, the British occupied Jerusalem, there was a commander who had a, a room alongside the wall, and he's looking north outside the city, and he sees this skull, or this, this rock. To the left, by the way, is a bus station. Up above, 
became a Muslim cemetery. But he's, he's writing these notes down of all this stuff, and then he got transferred and was killed in the, the Crimean War. Well, his memoirs go home, and somebody reads this thing, and they're going out to try to find it. So they bought this piece of real estate, they call it the Garden Tomb, and unlike all these other places where they said, this is where Jesus had the Sermon on the Mount, this is where he did this, they changed that whole thing and they said, this could have been where Jesus was crucified. And this could have been, that happens to be right down, that's why the picture's on that side, it's right down below that rock. This could have been where Jesus was buried. And they left it, of course they, they pull weeds and those kinds of things, but they left it just the way it is. That extra window, that, who knows what happened in the past 2,000 years, okay? But we're being told, now, now then, then the controversy was, there's an original wall of Jerusalem, and outside that wall is where the Catholics say Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. And then there was another wall, newer, that was built beyond that. Well, that it happens to be outside both those walls. Now, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Now, if we go back to Moses' day, the camp was where all the people were together, right? This is where all our people are together. And the exhortation that Paul has given is, when you leave church, they're no longer in the synagogues, right? They're, they're just meeting however and wherever they could. After uh, Stephen's death, the Bible said that they all dispersed because of the persecution. It says, when you leave your fellowship of believers and you go out, you better be, be prepared to bear the reproach. Again, the Hebrew people were basically put, uh, had funerals by their families, their work, everything. They were, totally, they were social outcasts. In this country, the notion of reproach, maybe I should just pray in the restaurant in my brain and not bow my head, because that would be a reproach. Some countries, they find out you're a Christian, it's a death sentence. I've mentioned many times, I'm an online missionary and I have to keep looking at that list of 50 countries where you can't mention the name of Jesus. Almost have to speak in parables. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now that first picture, that's Jerusalem these days, and there's the Dome of the Rock. And it's taken from the Mount of Olives. It's pretty tough to depict the New Jerusalem because it's a 1,500-mile cube. You do the studies in Revelation chapter 21, I'll put those verses up there right now. It's a 1,500-mile cube. Now, those of us that live in suburban America, we're not used to cubes. But if you had an apartment, say, in New York City, you're basically living in, it might as well be a cube, right? You take 1,500 miles in each direction, 
and do a little bit of math. And how many square feet do you have in your house? Just pick a number, do the division. Billions of people can live in that 1,500-mile cube. And so he's telling those Hebrew believers, just like in Hebrews chapter 11 when he said, by faith Abraham left Ur, went up to Haran, down into Israel, he never did get to see a city. When he died, he was still living in tents. And what he's saying is, we don't have a lasting city. The stuff where those people were living, the, the places where those people were living, the places where we live, the place where we worship, it's all going to be burned up. It's not, it's not lasting because it's going to be replaced with a new holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared for a bride adorned for her husband. If we would take the time to study all the new things, you would be shocked. We have a new city. We're get, going to be given a new name. I don't know, Bob. <laughs> We're going to be given a new name. We're going to be given a new language. We're going to be given a new set of clothing. We're going to be given a new residence. There'll be a new temple, which is the temple of Jesus himself. And there'll be no light there. I mean, there'll be no darkness there because he will provide the light. There'll be no clock there, so you can't say 24-7. It's just, it's just forever. It's just pretty difficult to put it all into words. So he's encouraging these folks to say, look, you're going to get picked on because you have to probably even move out of your house. All of the people you've ever known, all of your friends, they're all going to forsake you. I will tell you, having been, been saved as an adult, I would say there are only two or three people of all the people I knew in my college days that I could consider friends because I lost them all them all. Because, based on the crowd I ran with, got to keep that in mind. Based on the crowd I ran with as a... Uh, as a derelict, I lost all that. These people, humble, observant, but now by faith, they lost it all. And the encouragement is there's a, a new city coming. So then he leaves, and we're going to be way ahead, got only eight minutes to go here. He leaves with two things, a benediction and then another exhortation. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. His benediction is once again pointed at Hebrew believers, but it's applicable to us. Jesus was raised from the dead. If I cannot convince that observant Jew that Jesus was raised from the dead, he has no hope. Elijah raised somebody. Elisha raised somebody. Jesus rose, uh, gave life back to several people. <clears throat> but if Jesus had not risen, then we are still in our sins and our faith is in vain. The blood of the eternal covenant, 
those people were all raised on the Mosaic Covenant, which was conditional. You read chapters 23 to the end in the book of Deuteronomy, and it's all an if, but. If you keep your nose clean, I will bless you. But if you don't, I will curse you in all kinds of different uh, ways to measure that. That's how these people were raised. If I can keep my nose clean, I guess I'm going to be okay. And then you come to a realization that you can't keep your nose clean. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So where is the hope? For the Old Testament saint, I can't, I can't keep the law. God, have mercy on me. New Testament, we look back at the cross and we say, Jesus rose, and I'm going to trust in him because I can't do it on my own. The sacrifice of praise. We're come to, remember we started with that thing? Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And there is a different rendition to that. And I'm going to throw up a James chapter 3 because this is a great segue to go into chapter 3, to go into the book of James. Both books written originally to Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, a book of theology. The book of James, a book of application. And so here you have the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, and then by the time you get to James 3, and I already started talking about James 3, about it, not everybody should be a teacher, from the same mouth comes blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And so I think that is the very last click. And I'm going to leave it right there. We've got five minutes to spare. Questions, answers, maybe answers, on any topic. Comments. One of the few times I ended early, huh? We can go back and do it again.